So we're wrapping up a series on uh, how Christians do relationships. Um, And one of the challenges of preaching it is that the Bible speaks in grand theological terms and then assumes that, of course, as a response to what we receive from the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit, we will act in accordance with that with one another. You're like, I, what? People that know they're forgiven by God because of Christ forgive others. People that live a life of repentance where they know they can't save themselves know to and how to repent to one another. And then the fruit of that, what we enjoy from those decisions that begin as as pursuit of the Holy Spirit to us is reconciliation, which I'm calling finding one another. You know that you're missing one another either because of time or because of schedules or because of old wounds or because of new wounds. I remember the first time that I thought, the first time I had a glimpse of how tricky marital love could be from a friend. I was in college and he was listing his, he and his wife's rules for fighting. No name calling, no sarcasm, no yelling, no bringing up of past events that have been forgiven. And I was like, huh, that would be hard to not do that. And so they had another rule. I can't remember what it was because that fourth one, I was like, whoa. And the reason that that's tricky is not because that's tricky. The reason it's tricky is because the scripture begins with the assumption that forgiven people forgive and that repentant people repent and that people that know they're reconciled with God because of the work of Jesus Christ know how to and enjoy being reconciled with one another. I'm going to say something quickly about, well, that's ironic that I just said quickly. You'll understand in a second. I'll say something quickly about forgiveness before we define it. Forgiven people forgive and they don't rush it. Yeah, I see the irony. I didn't mean to say that. I was thinking about this uh, this week because there's a spectrum of sin against you, right? We're not all King Lear, men more sinned against than sinning. Oh yeah, I had to read some Shakespeare. (laughs) But on on the one hand, there's the, you know, the friend that lied to us when we were 12, and on the other hand, there's people that are human trafficked, right? And there's this giant spectrum. And so when we describe forgiveness, releasing the person of the pain they caused us and, and processing or absorbing what happened, choosing to not participate in them receiving what they did to us. There's an amazing difference between those of us that have been through trauma and abuse and those that have not, and yet we are all called to forgiveness. My point is, that's not fast for many of us, and there's a beautiful bridge in the scriptures. Do you know about the bridge? So one of my definitions of forgiveness is not desiring the ruin of the other. But every time you picture that person, especially if they were in a position of power and you had almost none at the time, you cannot help but picture their ruin. And so then when I say forgiveness begins with not desiring their ruin, you're struggling. There is a whole book of the scriptures devoted to that struggle and it's called the Psalms. It was Jesus' prayer book. Do you know that David would pray Lord, break their teeth. D 
Do you know that the writer of Psalm 88 said, darkness is my closest friend? Do you know that Psalm 137, which was a communal cursing psalm, was an act of trust and faith? And so as we're going to talk about forgiveness, please don't hear me say, rush it on your heart. It depends upon the level of trauma when your heart will be able to accept not desiring the other's ruin. We don't rush it. And the bridge between Jesus' command in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, and the reality of us actually being able, being able to live day to day as people who forgive is the Psalms. If we rush forgiveness, we are the worst kind of legalists. So, you know, keep an eye on that. Finding one another involves forgiveness. It involves repentance. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not talking about how to talk to your child when you've sinned against them or your spouse. But the rest of the New Testament assumes that a person that knows that they cannot save themselves will then have the humility to be able to approach their neighbors and ask about the time they hurt them and how they could do better the next time in relationship. That's not the repentance Jesus was talking about, but it's included. A man or a woman who has first said to God, I can't save myself at all. 100% your pursuit I receive that. That's our action of faith. Then is given the indwelling Holy Spirit, which gives them the humility, which is not crushing and not embarrassing and not shameful and doesn't cause us to fear. It's an empowering humility whereby we can then turn. Forgiven people forgive and repentant people repent and they all enjoy the result, which is gospel health. And what gospel health looks like in relationships is reconciliation. And for some of you, this is going to be a very difficult message, and here's why. You have tried and been rejected. You have apologized. You have owned what you can own in the relationship. You have repented, and you have... stiff arm has been given to you. I used to not understand that when I was about 18 to maybe, let's call it 28, first time I saw a church split. I thought, because I was so passionate about Jesus and we have Matthew 18 and we have Matthew chapter 6 and we have all these verses about reconciliation and forgiveness and of course all Christians are happy with all other Christians at all times. And then I saw 100 people leave the church. And that's when I started to learn about this human tendency. What's our tendency when we're hurt? Mount. And there's a legitimacy to that tendency. The legitimacy to the tendency is, that hurt. Why would I stay right here? But this is where the good news of the gospel of Jesus is clear. That while we have the forgiveness of Jesus, or not, well, that we have the forgiveness of Jesus, that his work atones for our sin and therefore we forgive others, which means releasing them of the pain of what they did and our role in the punishment. It even means desiring their good and not desiring their ruin. You notice I'm saying nothing about reconciliation, though I will in a minute. 
That's our first step. Our second step is repentance. And what we enjoy from that is gospel health. And you know what I'm implying is that humility plus conflict is going to equal relationship. And I know some of you don't fight. I know that in, this, in a room with this many people, somebody's like, you know, my husband and I never fight. And I'm going to share two things with you. One, I don't get it. <laughs> two, good for you. I'm, I'm glad you're able to work things out without any kind of conflict. For the rest of us, conflict is a necessity in a broken and corrupt and bent world where humans still sin. And it's how we learn gospel friendship with our siblings, with our children, with our coworkers, with our parents, with our church family. We learn to walk the steps that Jesus did on a cosmic step for us, first to reconcile us to him, but then to reconcile us to one another. When I was in seminary, um, I was having a bad day. And I'm really tempted to give you the whole story, but it'll make me look a little bit more like the hero of the story than I actually am. So I'm just going to say I was having a bad day. Though I'm going to allude to it to still make you think I'm a nice guy. And I was in Axon Paul, and I did not feel like being in Axon Paul. So what I should have done was go home. It would have been all right to miss a class. But I didn't. Instead, I opened my uh, computer and I researched old James Bond movies. I grew up in the Roger Moore era, so it was fun to go back and look at the Sean Connery movies. Um, the Timothy Dalton era, which in my opinion was ill-advised, was over, and we had moved along. Daniel Craig was not happening yet. I'm dating myself when I was in seminary. So the hour and 15 minutes of class passes, I close my laptop, I put it in my bag, and I hear this voice behind me say, hey bro, which is my wife's very favorite part of the story. <laughs> because I didn't know the guy. And I turn around, and he talks at me for 10 minutes about how disrespectful I was, about how distracting I was to him, about how mean that was to my good professors who, you know, lectured us. And, and I'm so thankful uh, that the Holy Spirit um, was alongside me and indwelling me in that moment by giving me Brad. So I'm 32 at this point, and Brad's 22, passionate follower of Jesus, right after college, goes straight into seminary, and he's listening to this guy just lambast me, and I'm like, so I don't get to backhand him, verbally, verbally backhand him, because Brad's here, so we have to model how to do this well, and he's going on, and then I think we're going to do that, and he has another five minutes of telling me how disrespectful I was and distracting to him and all that. And so I, as condescendingly as I possibly could, after he was done, I said, my name's Matt. And I shook his hand. And then we started to have a real conversation about what had happened. And I even acquiesced and apologized and repented to him. Here's the point of the story. Now what's going on between me and Danny? And this is part of the reason I didn't want to talk to him at all. But because Brad was standing there, I chose to. I took a breath, and before I said a word, I'm like, if I say a word, Danny and I are friends. When I see him for the rest of our seminary career, I got to talk to him, and he's got to talk to me. I got to learn his wife's name, and he's got to learn my wife's name. If we're going to conflict, if we're going to do something relationally, it means we're going to become friends, and we did. And he had a minion there, and so his minion and I became friends also. You can tell I still have a bad taste in my mouth about this. Humility plus conflict actually equals friendship in a broken and bent world, where we have tendencies to hurt one another, where our instincts towards love are impure, or at least imperfect. Finding one another requires working the steps. I am deliberately appropriating 
the language of addiction groups because addiction groups often understand relational conflict and storytelling and humility so much better than the church. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the terrible honor of, of doing a funeral. Sometimes it's mostly an honor. Sometimes it's a terrible honor. This was a terrible honor. And the woman who had died was part of recovery groups and people spoke so well about the realities of grief and addiction. There were tears and laughter and groaning in the room. And I was moved and wish that the church looked a little more like that. Because if our dependence on Jesus Christ is 100%, then we're humble and look a lot more like a recovery group than a polished country club. I'm not speaking specifically about the barn as much as I'm speaking about my hope. That the gospel of Jesus frees us into the humility of relationships where asking for forgiveness is not so difficult. And repentance is not something we consider, but something we do daily. And then we enjoy the fruit, which is finding one another. Forgiveness, again, is release of our role in their pain. It's processing and absorbing some of the pain that they caused us. And that's a big area that probably deserves its own sermon series. The reason I choose those words is they are the alternative to hitting back. If we're hit, literally or metaphorically, Christian does not hit back. I mean, if you're in a dangerous situation, hit back, then run, right? But you know what I mean. And so we release and we process and we long for their good and not for their ruin. And the reason is because Jesus of Nazareth, while we were yet sinners, died for us. He lived a perfect life and died for us, which purchases our forgiveness from the Father. The second step is repentance. And here, with, and I'm giving this long definition of forgiveness because I hear Christians define it poorly all the time. I mean, you have a really short definition of repentance. It's, it's, it's turn. You got into that point in a relationship where you said, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Well, then what happens next? Well, I don't know. Maybe more words need to happen. Maybe there needs to be some silence and space. I don't know if you know this, I'm a talkative person. Oftentimes when I repent to my wife, what she needs after I repent is not more words. Thought I'd get some amens on that from people that are married to word people, but I've actually learned that too. Not all the time, I don't do it all the time, but I've learned that my repentance to her, say, Rachel, I'm so sorry that I did that. Please forgive me. And then there's gonna be a conversation about how we as a couple live in light of me asking her forgiveness. Well, that's turning from that behavior or stance or word system that we've developed in our marriage, I don't know how it looks for you. When your parent repents to you, they're turning. I don't know how that looks in that relationship. I know that repentance with one of my older brothers is really hard because when he starts telling me about what life's like for him, I hear the 16-year-old version of him, and then suddenly I'm the 12-year-old version of me, and that wasn't a great season. 
And that's why this is so rarely realized in our relationships. It's not because we're not followers of Jesus. It's because being a human is so complex and we're full of these memories and our spouse or our brother or sister or our parent or our child starts talking and we know exactly what they're going to say for two to 17 more minutes. Exactly. And yet it is still our calling to listen. This is actually why it's so difficult for parents to repent to children because initially in the relationship, the power dynamic is like this, right? Especially when they're little and you have to protect them. That's God ordained it that way on purpose. You have a significantly greater power than they do, but over time, in a healthy relationship, you become friends with your child. Repenting to them is that much harder because you know their story. You were there. You're the reason their story exists. And yet, as a follower of Jesus, learning to repent to your children is perhaps the most important thing for you to do with them and for them. Parents, listen, it's more important that your children know what repentance looks like through your modeling than that they don't cuss. False dichotomy alert, philosophy people, you can hate me for this. It's very unclassical what I'm going to do for a few minutes. But I mean it. It is more important that your children see you model repentance to them than that they keep their room clean. It is more important that your children see you model repentance to them than that they respect you. Am I saying that it is unimportant that they respect you? No. But if the Christian gospel is true, then it is more important that you have looked them in the eye and said, I am sorry. Please forgive me. And then listen to them tell you how to love them well after that. And you know what ruins a good repentance or forgiveness or apology moment? An explanation. And it's so difficult especially when your children are not grown because you see so much more than they see. But don't do it. When it's time to repent to your child, parents, tell them you're sorry and ask for their forgiveness and then listen to them and say nothing. I think it's one of the most profound and important things that we teach our children. And the best way to teach it is through modeling it. And the best way to ruin that modeling is to explain all of your actions and motivations depending upon their age. The only time I ever spanked one of my children is when they ran into the street because she was endangering her life. And I only had to do it twice and it almost killed me. Depending on the age of the kid, you explain. But when you repent, and this is why parents and children have such a hard time later in life finding one another if they don't know these steps. And yet it is so sweet. And it is not just for parents, it's for friends and lovers and coworkers and spiritual family. We learn to walk the steps. We learn to find one another again Finding one another requires working the steps and enjoying the fruit. You heard this formulation by C.S. Lewis that the only pain-free way to do life is to love nothing. You know what he's talking about? 
because relationships are in fact that messy. And he goes on to say, if you choose that way, you will find a cold life. Your heart will become more and more brittle and hard. He's getting at all sorts of things at the same time. One of them is our desire to control our world. And it's not, you didn't come upon that desire illegitimately. You're not making up the pain that leads you to desire to have everything neat and tidy. And relationships will require more than that. And it is easy for me to say that based upon my personality type and my chemistry and my story. I still need to tell you that relationships are messy. And what we have from the Lord is a pursuing God who loves us and likes us, who calls us his own. And as a response to that love, he gives us the steps to heal relationships. And again, for some of you, it's hard to hear this because you've taken all those steps and been rejected. The Holy Spirit is with you, for you, comforting you, healing. Good job, and I'm sorry. For others, you're remembering points where the steps got messed up, either by explanation or by circumstance or something like that. That means you're a human being. What we're talking about is learning to live in light of the love of God revealed to us and then the description of love given to us. There are so many things that we value that don't compare to this. In the church, we value spiritual gifts. We value leadership. And yet, the bottom line is love. I was saying to some friends recently, you know, the only thing you can see about another person's faith is how they treat other people. That's it. They can recite creeds, but that doesn't tell you how they treat other people. And so we're asking the Holy Spirit to grow us up right this second in love. Do you know the verse that precedes Paul's definition by description of love in 1 Corinthians 13? So they're talking about spiritual gifts. And Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love.
we're talking about maybe the skin and the tissues of love when we talk about forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. The backbone is this definition. And the power, the energy, the heart is the gospel of Jesus. And it is a priority. It is the priority in relationship. Do you remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5? We covered this a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said this, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I've heard people say that they think that's about communion. Like you're not supposed to take communion until you have made peace with everybody. Let me just clear something up. That's not about communion. That's about the priority of neighbor love. Similarly, as before, I'm, I'm sort of making a false dichotomy because I've heard people make a false dichotomy to me. I can't take communion until I've done all that I can to be at peace with everyone. We're supposed to do all we can to be at peace with everyone, and we're supposed to receive the sacrament if we're a follower of Jesus. And the thing that bothers me most about when people think it's about communion is they're missing the point of the text. When Jesus says first, he's making it quite clear that what followers of Jesus do is they work very hard at making peace with one another through the humility that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Jesus wanted to connect this to communion, he would have. My point is not to separate that, though I hope that it separates that. My point is to point out to you Jesus using the word first. His followers, inevitably, because of his forgiveness for them, because of the life of repentance he calls us to, because he has reconciled us to the Father, his followers learn to take these steps with one another because of the gospel. In some ways, this was way easier to preach at a church plant when we were all young and knew everything and were so passionate. And then 100 people left the church over a personality disagreement. And then another hundred left because the pastor didn't have the capacity they longed for. Not me, the other one. (laughs) Although that was me, maybe my second year here. Now it's interesting to preach it because I look around the room and there are men and women that have been doing this in spiritual community here for decades. And it's a challenge. It is a challenge to our memory to remember that we're forgiven by God and therefore we forgive others. It's a challenge to remember that what we're called to is a life of repentance. Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, when we hurt someone, we go to them and ask them about it. And they're not even always ready to talk about it. But when they are, we enjoy the fruit of that and reconciliation. And it's so imperfect. As I look around the room, I know it's imperfect. It's imperfect between siblings It's incredibly challenging for parents. It's very difficult in spiritual family. One of the many reasons is we have these expectations that Christians are more spiritually and emotionally developed than other humans. You know what we all have in common? One thing, need. 
That's the thing, humanly speaking, that you have in common if you're in this room. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're considering being a follower of Jesus, the thing that got you into the room was some sense that maybe you're kind of needy. Which is part of the reason that spiritual family is so challenging. And we go back to the steps, not because they're good steps to take, but because Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, is and was that friend to us living a sinless life, dying for us, rising from the dead, reconciling us to the Father, leaving us the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we respond out of love to one another. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we desperately need your help. Would you help our memories that we might, by faith, believe and believe more deeply and deeply in our bones that you love us and like us, that you have forgiven us and called us your own daughters and sons of the true King. Holy Spirit, would you warm our hearts in this very moment to trust and lean into your saving grace and then to forgive one another, to live lifestyles of repentance next to and near and in relationship with one another and then to enjoy the fruit of that which is reconciliation. Father, would you give us wisdom? There are men and women in this room thinking about abuse. Draw near in ways they can sense and understand and heal. There are many disoriented relationships that need your healing. Heal them at a pace they can sense and understand that is not overwhelming or stagnant. Holy Spirit, give us the peace that you offer, not as the world gives, but as you give, a peace that will never quit on us, that will hold us and never let us go. And Father, as a response to your love, would you help us as families, as individuals, as brothers and sisters, co-workers, children, and a spiritual family to live lives in keeping with forgiveness, repentance, and then enjoying reconciliation with one another. Amen.